Today we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear, and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Morning. N.T. Wright, the biblical theologian, tells the story of Cosmo Lang, who was Archbishop of Canterbury in England. And as he retired... He remarked to a colleague showing his real fear, a fear which one might have hoped an archbishop would long since have outgrown. Having been somebody, he remarked, I shall now be nobody. See, our culture is obsessed with the somebodies of the world, isn't it? We all feel like either we're somebody or... We are nobodies. We elect our presidents best, based more on image than on substance. We evaluate, we compare, desperate to try to gain some sense of self-worth, either through being somebody ourselves or maybe being attached to somebody who is somebody, or even just to become a fan of somebody who's somebody so that we can feel okay about ourselves. <laughs> and we end up despising our weaknesses because it's our weaknesses we see as holding us back from really being somebody. We think, if I was only more like, or if I could only do or be, then, then I could be somebody. Well, in our section today in 1 Corinthians, Paul points out that this Worldly way of thinking is wrong. And it creates division in the church. God wants to change the way we think about ourselves, about others, and about leaders in the church. So we can love each other the way God wants us to. He wants us to understand that God chooses purposely weak people, the nobodies of the world for a reason 
so that we will learn to trust Him and appreciate and value ourselves and others as truly gifts from God to the church. And rather than despising our weaknesses, we can see them as God sees them, as part of His great plan for the world. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we confess that we easily get caught up in wanting to be somebody or to elevate those who in the world's eyes are somebody. Use this passage, Lord, the power of your word by your spirit to change us today, to change our thinking so that we might change the way we relate and better love you and love one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this first section, 26 through 31, the end of chapter 1 that David just read, Paul shows us the power of weak believers, the power of weakness. Paul starts off this way in verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. He points to the certain standards, the worldly standards that we tend to judge other people by and ourselves that make you somebody. But Paul says, you know, if you look at the worldly standards, what the world says makes somebody somebody. <laughs> if you look around you in the church and think about those who God is calling into His family, the family of God, not many are big shots in the world's eyes. He describes three different qualities that the world really looks up to. He says wise. Not many were wise among you. Now, in the Greek world, this was really, really important because Greeks are known for their wisdom. There were people who traveled around, the philosophers, the Platos, the Aristotles, the Socrates of the world came out of this Greek culture. They exalted those who were really wise, who were logical, who had such brilliance. We think, oh, that was the Greek world, right? <laughs> but don't we exalt those who have the most letters after their name, PhDs, postdoctorate work, etc.? We think, wow, they're really something. Or we exalt those who are experts in a particular field. We think, wow, you know, they, they must have studied a long time. They really know something. And, and we exalt those kinds of people. They're the somebodies of the world, the wise, the brilliant, those who go to the best schools, etc. We place them on a higher plane in our culture too. And then he says, there were not many that were influential or powerful among you. This is the Greek word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite, powerful in society, those who are influential. Again, the Greeks considered the somebodies to be those who were the movers and shakers of culture, the great speakers, the politicians, the wealthy. And if you can imagine this, Greek culture even strangely exalted those who were great athletes in their culture. Can you imagine that? Well, of course you can. You see, the Greeks exalted all of these as the ones who were dynamite. They're influential. They're powerful. They're somebodies. 
And I think we're as bad or worse, aren't we? We, we love to exalt the celebrities, the Hollywood stars, the professional athletes, the wealthy, the CEOs, those who started low and made it to the top, etc. We exalt these kinds of people and we think, wow, they are the somebodies of the world. I used to pastor in Lake Tahoe. And every year they have a big celebrity golf tournament there. So I took my kids, a couple of the boys, and we went uh, one year to watch it. And we saw Michael Jordan, you know, greatest basketball player ever. So we thought, wow, let's follow him around and watch him play golf. You know what? He's not that great a golfer. (laughs) But we were enamored because here's this famous celebrity athlete. Isn't it interesting how... That's who we exalt in our culture. Then he says, there were not many of you noble-born. The word there really describes being born into aristocracy. In the Roman world, over 50% of the Roman people were slaves. And then you had a number of kind of middle-class people who worked, at different jobs, etc., kind of a middle class. And then you had a small minority that were the aristocracy. They were noble-born. They were born into the best families, into wealth, into power. And they really looked up to them more than any others. Well, you know, we're not, we don't have a kind of a class society like some societies are, right? In America, we're all equal. Ha. We exalt the simplots of the world, those who are born into powerful families, the Kennedys, others. We think somehow they're more important, more valuable than we are because we're just everyday folk. And what Paul says is, well, if you look around the church, there were not many that were wise, not many powerful, not many noble-born. Some... God chooses some that are in the world's eyes influential, but God doesn't choose a lot of those. There's a famous quote by Selena, the Countess of Huntingdon, who was a very powerful and influential person in her day, and she read this passage and she said, I thank God for the M. Because Paul doesn't say God didn't choose any influential people. He didn't choose many. (laughs) And she said, well, I'm included at least because she loved Jesus too. God chooses some noble because he wants all to be saved. But God has a plan, a purpose in choosing not many who are influential in the world's eyes. He purposely chooses others like us. (laughs) Ordinary people like you and me. In fact, notice how he describes us. It's rather sobering, really. Verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Whom did God choose? First word he uses is the word foolish. Foolish. Not the brilliant ones, but he chooses people who are foolish. And this word in the Greek is moros, moron, where we get our word moron. (laughs) 
God purposely chooses people who are foolish. This has the idea that a foolish person is someone who's not that wise, who is not that good at making decisions, who ends up making a mess of things too often in their lives. It's the same word that when Jesus is talking about the wise man built his house upon the rock, but the foolish man, same word, built his house upon the sand, and it didn't turn out very well. When the storms came, it collapsed. Interesting, isn't it? God chose those who don't make wise decisions. Then it says, and God chose the weak things of the world. That word for weak is often used in the scripture of physical weakness, those who struggle. Maybe you're one of those that struggle with physical weakness. In fact, we all do eventually, right? Or maybe you struggle with some kind of chronic depression or something and you think, man, I'm, I'm weak. Why, why did God, why am I weak? God chose you for a purpose, it says. God chose the weak. The word weak here has the idea of physical sickness, but often in Scripture it's used of simply those who aren't very strong, who aren't very capable at handling life. They just can't seem to have the strength or ability to handle life very well. They can't ever seem to get ahead. Paul says, that's whom God chose. And then thirdly, he says, he chose the low and despised things of the world. That God purposely chooses those who are looked down on by society or are simply ignored in our world as not really counting. Not noble-born, but instead those from especially dysfunctional families that struggle because of their family of origin. And it makes life hard because of the hand that they've been dealt in life. And Paul says, those are the very ones that God chose. William Barclay describes a writer who wrote in AD 178, Celsus, who wrote one of the bitterest attacks upon Christianity that was ever written. He ridiculed the fact that it wasn't the influential people that were coming to Christ. He's declared that the Christian point of view was, let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible, for all that kind of thing, we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any is wanting in sense and culture, if any man is a fool, let him come boldly. Of the Christians, he wrote, we see them in their own houses, wool dressers, cobblers and fullers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. And then he said, the Christians were like swarm of bra- a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium round a swamp, or worms in a conventicle in a corner of mud. I don't think he liked Christians very much. What do you think? (laughs) But notice what he's criticizing. That those who were not powerful in society were mostly the ones coming to Christ, but it was those who were low. The slaves the criminal background people, those who'd been to prison, etc., etc. 
That's who God loves to choose to be in His church. It's as if God's choosing teams. We were talking in my class Tuesday or Wednesday night about this, and one of the people in the in the class said, "Yeah, it's as if you're choosing teams, and you know the man is saying, I want the, I want the most powerful, I want the strongest.'" And God's looking at the end of the line at the skinny little person who's a terrible athlete and says, that's who I want. I want the fools. I want the rejects. I want those who aren't very powerful and aren't very good at handling life. That's who I want for my team. Now you may say, why, why is that? Why would God not want the powerful people? You know, what, what we could do for Christianity if, if, you know, all these Hollywood celebrities and athletes and everything would come to Christ. Some are. But why is it that God specifically chooses mostly ordinary people who struggle in life? Paul tells us. He gives us three reasons why God loves the weak and chooses us, the weak, to be in his kingdom. He says, first of all, to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to nullify the things that are. What does he mean by that? I think he chooses weak people to send a message to those who are powerful and influential to tell them they've got it all wrong. The way to real life, real joy, Wholeness, fulfillment in life is not by having it all together, being somebody. But the way to life is through recognizing you're weak and you need Jesus every day. And those who learn in their weakness to depend on Jesus are the ones who really become all that they were meant to be. So Paul says to shame the wise, to send a message to them that they are all wrong about life. Secondly, he says, the reason God loves the weak is the weak do learn to depend on Jesus, not ourselves, for wisdom, righteousness, sanctification. It says Jesus has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, all the things we long for in life are really wrapped up in Him, not in us. And once you begin to see that and see that Jesus is all I want and all I ultimately need for life, and so I want to depend on Him, it's all about Him, not about me becoming somebody, suddenly your life becomes what it was meant to be all along. So God chooses the weak, so we'll learn to depend more on Jesus and not on ourselves. Now, together people... Somebody's need Jesus just as much as we do. They just don't know it. But a weak person knows it a lot more easily. The third reason that he says God chooses the weak is so our boasting might not be in man, but in him. Verse 31, so that it is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, that he might get all the glory, that our boasting might not be in the fact that we have it together or we can do this ministry so wonderfully, aren't we great, etc., but so all our boasting might be in the Lord because, man, if anything happens, <laughs> it's got to be him. 
It's because God intervened. And he gets all the praise when he uses weak vessels like you and like me. There's a story that Brendan Manning includes. It's an old African parable, but he includes it in his book, Ruthless Trust. And I want to read it to you because I think it pictures for us what we're talking about. He says, A water bearer in India had two large pots, each hung on opposite ends of a pole that he carried across his neck. One of the pots had a crack in it, while the other was perfect. The latter always delivered a full portion of water at the end of the long walk from the stream to the master's house. But the crack pot always arrived only half full. Every day for two years, the water bearer delivered only one and a half pots of water. The perfect pot in this parable was proud of his accomplishments. Look what I've done. The other pot was ashamed because it was imperfect and it was miserable that it was only able to accomplish half of what it was designed for. After a couple of years of this, bitter failure by the second pot, the unhappy pot finally spoke to its water bearer and said, I'm ashamed of myself and I want to apologize to you. He said, what? Why are you apologizing? He said, I I failed for the last two years. You haven't been able to take two full pots of water to the master's house. Because of my flaws, you have to do all this extra work to get enough water. Well, the water bearer felt sorry and said, will you look at the path down to the stream? See the beautiful flowers there? He said, yeah, that's fine. I feel, you know, they're beautiful, but I still feel terrible about myself. And he said, no, no, you don't get it. Because you drip water all the way along, I've been able to plant these beautiful flowers. Notice they're only on one side of the path. And I've taken advantage of your flaw. I've always known about it. For two years, I've been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate my master's table. Without you being just the way you are, he would not have had this beauty to grace his house. You see, God takes into account when he chooses us our weaknesses. They're part of his plan. So it's an encouragement for us not to despise our weaknesses and our struggles, but to see them as part of God's bigger plan that all the boasting might be in him, that we, through our weakness, through our cracks, might more fully display the glory of God. It's as if God has written a, a, a job announcement looking for person not good at making decisions. Not too smart, with no social or political clout, from a severely dysfunctional family that other people look down on. No references necessary. <laughs> but isn't that freeing? It's not about us being together. In fact, in the midst of our weakness, God uses that weakness for his plan and his purpose to fulfill his greater glory in the kingdom of God. 
And God purposely chooses not only weak believers to be in the body of Christ, but he purposely chooses weak leaders to be in the body of Christ as well. That's what he says in these next few verses, the first five verses of chapter 2. And think for a minute with me, what do you look for in a leader? What's important to you? What do you look for in a pastor? Now, in the Greek world, there was obviously no internet, no newspapers, no TV, no way to get information or find out about people or what's going on. There weren't very many books. Very few people could read. So everybody would go to the public square in the Greek world and they would listen to the great orators speak. They would find out the news of the day. They would find out the latest philosophies, the latest thinking. That's how they met and they got together. And so the Greeks developed this elaborate system of rhetoric, they called it, oration, speaking. Speaking was incredibly important to them. Aristotle wrote rules about how people were to speak and how you evaluated speakers to see if they were the best ones. Rhetoric was the art of persuasion, how to move an audience to action with arguments. The two important things about rhetoric were the way you spoke, if you had the right style of speaking, that was very highly valued. And then secondly, if you had very clear logic and as you work through this logic, your content was very, very important. They evaluated all speakers this way in the Greek world. Notice what Paul says. I did not come to you with the testimony of God with eloquence, rhetoric, lofty speech, or wisdom, the logic. I did not come to you that way. But think about our world today. How do we tend to evaluate leaders, pastors in particular? You know, the best speakers who know how to craft their words and their message so perfectly are the ones that we exalt, the ones we listen to on the radio, the ones that we pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to come to see at a conference. We buy their books. We're drawn to the latest successful churches in our Christian culture. And if a church can grow into several thousand people, then they immediately start a conference and invite all the other people to come so they can learn how to do it right like they do it. Hmm. Here's what Paul says to that. Here's what God says to that. That's man's way. That's not God's way. He says, when I came to you, I didn't use any of that stuff. I weren't so eloquent. <laughs> I didn't speak so goodnessly. I came not with elaborate logic, he says, but a simple message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said, that's all I focused on among you. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, I think Paul had to learn that because if you remember the book of Acts before he came to Corinth, he had been to several different places and he was teaching the Word and he would go to the Jews and try to convince them of truth through logic. 
and he got run out of town over and over again. Then he ended up in Athens and he spoke with the philosophers there and he spoke in a philosophical way. And he ended up leaving because nobody really converted, very few, to Christ. He showed up in Corinth and he had a simple message, he says. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what happened? He stayed in a year and a half because a big church got established and he was able to invest much because of a simple message of Jesus and him crucified. That's what I love about someone like Billy Graham, who's not out really to impress people. Is he influential? Yeah, but it's through a simple message and it's through his own weakness. His message is simply Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he's had an influential ministry for many, many years because it's simple, like Paul's. And then Paul says this, and I didn't come with eloquence, I didn't say it all right, I didn't do it all right. In fact, he says, I came with in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He tells us about that in 2 Corinthians. He says, Paul showed up. He says, I showed up and I was despairing even of life. I was depressed. I thought I was going to die. I went through physical problems. He talks about a thorn in the flesh. He talks about coming and God opened a door for ministry in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians and he says, I couldn't walk through it because I was so discouraged and so depressed. He says, that's how I came to you. I didn't have it together. I was struggling. I was inadequate. You see, God's way is totally opposite of the world, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, this is topsy-turvy, the opposite of how our world thinks. And that's exactly Paul's point. He's saying, you are believers. And you need to look at one another and at your leaders as God does as weak people who need to depend on Him for everything. Stop evaluating one another through worldly standards. Stop it. It creates division. Stop looking at comparing your pastor to someone else's pastor or whatever. Don't do it, he says. Instead, realize that God wants believers and His leaders purposely to be weak and needy, so his power can be seen in us. Ray Sedman in a devotional says this, we are being bombarded with the philosophy that natural abilities are what make a person usable as a Christian. A strong personality, outgoing, optimistic outlook, gifts of leadership, handsome frame and body, musical ability, speaking ability, all these are the things we think that God will use. Paul says, This is a ridiculous way of thinking. (laughs) Paul says, I had to learn that these ideas didn't help. That Christ working in me is the only thing that God really approves of. So, why then does God want even his leaders to be weak? To be needy? To be dependent on Jesus all the time? Two reasons he gives us in these verses. Number one, in verse four, he says this, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why does he want weak leaders? So that what's seen is the spirit's power. Through a weak person who struggles and needs him, 
God is able to reveal that the real power behind this is not in this person who so together and is wonderful at what he does, but that the real power, the real impact comes through the Spirit himself. I came to Christ when I was in high school. I had heard the gospel several times in different contexts, but it, it never really made sense to me. I never really embraced it. Until my junior year in high school, I got to know uh, another classmate of mine, a young woman who really struggled in life. She came from a really dysfunctional family. It was hard for her. And yet I saw her clinging to Jesus. And there was something so real and genuine about her faith and about who she was. Because I was trying to live up to the world's standards. I was trying to be somebody and I was working so hard to, to be liked, to be successful in the world's eyes. And here was somebody who didn't need all that and yet whom Christ was visible in, even in her weakness. And I was so drawn to that, I committed my life to Christ at age 17. God loves working through the weak. Secondly, Paul says, he wants weak leaders so that, verse 5, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that believers, he says, might not trust in a person because he's got it all together, he's up on the stage, he's a leader, he does all these wonderful things, but that your faith might rest in Jesus. Knowing that person up on the stage is just as weak as everybody else needs Jesus just as much, doesn't have it all together. What we all need is Jesus. And so you learn to put your trust in Jesus, not in a man. I thank God that God keeps reminding me of my weakness. Physically, emotionally, etc. I need him. I pray I'll never forget that. Folks, our world's value system is all messed up. It despises weakness. It exalts people who have it together, human power. And it leads to division and critical spirits and bad attitudes and a lack of love when it permeates the church. So Paul challenges us to think differently about one another and about our leaders. We need to realize that God purposely chooses weak people to be in His church and to lead His church so that his power will be displayed in these cracked pots that you and I are. And so we will trust in Jesus as our wisdom, our righteousness, our life, and not in man. A quote from Ray Stedman again. When is the devil being beaten? Not when we feel great and confident, when it looks like wonderful things are happening, when the ministry is going well. No, the devil is being defeated when we're feeling attacked and under the gun, when we feel weak and helpless and do not know what to do, when we are not sure how to respond, when in our perplexities and sense of weakness we come before the Lord and plead with Him to, for the strength to go on one more day and for the grace to help us stand. That is when we are winning and when the kingdom of God is being spread more abundantly than ever before. What are the greatest 
symbols of Christianity in the world today. I would suggest to you a manger and a cross. Not a throne, a crown, an arm of power, but symbols of weakness because Jesus showed us that it's through weakness that the power of God gets released. It's through weakness that the kingdom of God is built. And Jesus walked in weakness. He showed us the way. That God's power is revealed best in weak human beings like you and me. Let's pray. Lord, your ways are not our ways. (laughs) Again, we confess that we have been too worldly in our thinking. But thank you for helping us see reality that that what's really exalted in the kingdom of God are the weak, the needy, the foolish, the ones the world despises. Lord, we pray that you would help us learn to depend on you, admit our weaknesses, be okay with being nobodies because we are somebody in your kingdom. We give you thanks and praise that you have chosen us as we are. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.